0: Peace of Mind with Ken Pope. As a parent of a child with a disability or special needs, you need to navigate the complex legal issues of providing continued care and quality of life for your child. You need Peace of Mind with Ken Pope. Good morning. This is Ken Pope. This is the second installment of uh, Peace of Mind, the uh, radio broadcast show that uh, I'm hoping you'll find interesting again. I'd like to thank everyone who's taken part. My law practice, which uh, specializes in wills and trusts and estate planning for families with children with special needs, is a uh, provincial and interprovincial practice, and in fact I've just gotten back from Barbados, and I'm uh, working in collaboration with the local bar association and the Barbados uh, Society of Trust and Estate Practitioner chapter to, uh, to bring Henson trusts to Barbados. It's a different environment, but of course, Barbados is a beautiful country. You couldn't be anything; you wish to do anything better than to work with a lot of Asian people. They're just wonderful people. Uh, the topic this today will be how to find and access additional supports for yourself and your children with special needs. Um, I'm collaborating with um, two uh, women who. Uh, are the executive director and, and the support coordinator, respectively, of the uh, Brain Injury Society of Toronto for a webcast. And when that's done, if you uh, contact the office, I'll have that, that sent to you. And it's all about other additional financial and other social supports for families with kids with special needs. Um, I'll cover the uh, material that I expect to, uh, to cover in that webcast. Um, Melissa Bigger is the executive director, and Laura Bellin is the support coordinator. The uh, the clientele that I have um, are of all ages, and their children are of all ages, so we assist them on a lifetime spectrum, because, of course, what the parents need to help support the children and support themselves when the children are young changes over time. When, When the child turns 18 and they're no longer a juvenile; they're now an adult, and of course, different programs change. Uh, and and in fact, when they when those same children turn sixty five, things change again. And I don't think we'll get into that very much today, but that is uh, going to be a topic for one of the uh, next uh, upcoming broadcasts. The um, the usual um, audit, the assessment that we do with families is we have a form, a simple two-page, quickly filled-out form that tells us more about the the parent, where they live in the province, what their occupations are, and then, of course, more about the child, tax credits, benefits uh, that they receive now, how much are they getting, and uh, whether the parents have wills, do they have a Henson trust to provide for the child when they're gone, does the child have an RDSP, all of these sorts of things. And we we get to know the story, and then what we do is we determine firstly, are they using the tax credits that they should be using correctly? And surprisingly, uh, you'll find that many people don't know about the disability or the caregiver tax credits. And the most common profile we have when we deal with uh, families is families that either didn't know at all or did use the credit and then ceased, for example, when the child went into supported living because they thought the child had to reside with them, which is not true. Now, what we typically find, this is the most common profile, is that uh, we can uh, put the disability tax credit in place. Uh, This is a matter of uh, establishing with certain forms with Canada Revenue and and a a doctor's uh, signature on a, a T2201 form that the child is markedly restricted in some way, uh, cognitively, physically, mental health-wise, that they can't function uh, in various ways or that they're markedly restricted or take substantially longer. And then what we do is we transfer this credit, once approved, from the child who doesn't pay taxes to a parent who does. And the standard recapture, if it's for someone under 18, we can go back as far as 10 years and recapture $22,000, and as well, uh, depending upon the household income, uh, the parents then often qualify in addition for a tax-free grant, the Canada Disability Child Credit, which is about 2400 a year, times 10. So we have some very uh, happy situations where we're able to put all of this in place and uh, set things up for going forward in the future. Because, of course, it reduces taxes going forward as well uh, also by the way, the disability credit allows the child to have a registered disability savings plan, and uh especially once they've turned eighteen and they're receiving provincial disability benefits based upon their own income, if someone their parent contributes fifteen hundred dollars, the government puts in forty five hundred for twenty years, so you contribute. Thirty thousand over twenty years, and of course the credit reduces your taxes by sixteen hundred. So this is a nice uh, congruence, and then the government puts in ninety thousand. Plus the money's invested, and if the money were invested at five percent, at the end of that twenty-year period, the RDSP would total two hundred thousand dollars, and continue to grow for at least another ten years. Uh, when the uh, grants and bonds become vested. So you can see this is a substantial estate planning matter. Now it doesn't help the family in the short term, which is why I generally recommend that they set up the RDSP if the child's under 18, but hold off until the child is receiving ODSP benefits when they're 18. Now, if the child's under 18, and the household is a single income household or a low income household, either because there's a single parent or because uh, one of the parents is at home with the child while the the other parent works, it's a single income household. Then there's the potential for what's called ACSD, Assistance for Children with Severe Disabilities. And it doesn't really so much turn on severity. It's really just that the child has a disability, household income is low, and the household is unable to pay for certain things that are appropriate for the child. And the family could receive up to $450 a month. Now, very few people know about this. So if you or someone you know is in a single-income household with a child of special needs, they should check out assistance for children with severe disabilities. Uh, you can Google that, or you can contact my office. Contact uh, Karen at kpopelaw.ca, and uh, we'll uh, send you the links and the forms for this. Then, once the child is eighteen, uh, you can apply for provincial disability, be- uh, sorry, uh, Ontario disability support benefits, which, uh, w- if the child is living with you, they'll initially be slotted into eight ninety six a month, plus drug and dental, uh, but which we can often increase by two hundred and seventy three dollars to eleven sixty nine. So, this is, of course, a major s- source of support. Uh, While the child is under 18, the parents could receive what is funding, which is called special services at home. And it's um, an allocated amount, let's say $5,000, that is intended to help provide respite for the parents. And, of course, the way this is done is uh, the money is spent on the child for uh, tutors, uh, companions, trips, camps. And the parents lay out that money firstly and then are reimbursed up to the amount of of special services at home funding that is granted. Once the child is over 18, then there is a similar type of support for children with cognitive disabilities called passport funding. And if you have a child who has cognitive disabilities, well then you should, uh, as they're approaching age 18, become involved with Developmental Services Ontario, D.S.O. Because if they agree that the child's cognitive impairments uh, have them fall within their ambit, then they will assist you. They'll do an excellent over. It'll take a few months, of course, but they'll do an excellent um, cognitive and functional assessment and report. Excellent work. It would cost you five or six thousand dollars if you did it yourself, at least. And what this they will also do is they'll help you apply for passport funding and if it's appropriate they'll have the child put onto a supported housing list now of course as long as the child's living with you and is safe and sec- safe and secure which they are uh they're not really going anywhere on that list uh, but if something were to happen to you or if there was some crisis uh then they could be placed into a supported living environment now uh at the moment there's a, a severe restriction on funding for this, it hasn't been reduced. It's just that there's always more demand than there is supply. And right now we're in a very demographic situation where um, a lot of, of children, adult children, um, are, uh, uh, their parents are, are looking for a, a suitable transition for them from home. Of the 365,000 people on ODSP, forty five thousand which is about thirteen percent still live with their pa- their family, typically the parent uh, some of some of course with a sibling so forty five thousand um, have not made that transition, and as time goes by the the, the uh, urgency of this kind of planning and transition becomes more apparent more more important and so of course, if you have a potential backlog of forty five thousand people here which uh, Understandably, uh, strains the uh, present resources for these supports. But nevertheless, you have to make that plan, uh, or just presume that if the child stays at home with the parents, when the parents pass on, either, there'll be a crisis, um, and they're on a list, so then they'll get some sort of interim respite support, and then eventually a placement, uh, or and this is you know increasingly rare. Uh, that they'll go and live with other uh, family. The um, other supports that are available are actually uh, modest. The um, The greatest likelihood is uh, firstly putting into place what is possible right now. The tax credits, uh, ODSP benefit increases, passport funding. And then, of course, for the long term, Contributions to the registered disability savings plans because to be a slightly simple uh, when the child turns sixty, if you start right now when the child is eighteen and you contribute for twenty years and you get the full grants and bonds, uh, the money's properly invested not not too excessively conservatively, so that you're getting a return less than inflation, for example, then eventually in twenty years, thirty years forty years. Uh these uh plans, these RDSPs, uh will amount to two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, and when the child turns sixty, they would then uh be paid out over a twenty-three year period, depending upon the amounts contributed, the growth involved, and of course the, the continued growth on the money not paid out. Uh one of the problems with uh with this though is that by definition These RDSPs are only available for children who qualify for the disability tax credit. So obviously, if they are part of the one-third of the uh, people on ODSP who have cognitive disabilities, or perhaps mental health issues that um, make things complicated for them, then they either couldn't manage this money themselves Either when it's accumulating or when it is being dispersed, and it will only be be payable to them, the beneficiary. And if obviously, if there's a cognitive impairment, they couldn't manage this money, and if there's mental health issues, uh, they might manage it very poorly. Or uh, make a certain number of uh, new friends once they have this this cash flow, uh, but you can see that uh, if by the time the child's sixty and the the uh, formula provides that they'll receive payments over a 23-year period, this is a substantial additional amount of support because they'll continue to receive ODSP. It won't affect that. Um, whoever is, has the passport funding will continue to receive that. And in fact, the passport funding can pass on after the parents are gone to uh, surviving siblings or even friends because it's still for the needs of the caregiver of that person the uh, the caregiver credit is applicable if the child is over 18 and we do this in conjunction with the disability tax credit and a maximum recapture on that would be approximately eight thousand dollars for over 10 years now once the child turns 65 they're obviously no longer children although their parents still consider them their children Uh, By this time, of course, the parents are quite elderly. And what happens is, then, is this uh, 65-year-old individual, somebody on their behalf, if they're incapable, has to apply for old-age security and guaranteed income supplements, just like all seniors. And they then receive coverage for drugs under the Ontario Drug Benefit Program, just like all seniors do. But obviously, if the person is not competent or is mentally ill, they may well not be able to do this or may not just get around to it. Now, a person would remain on ODSP until these other benefits replace it. So it's not like they turn 65 and on their birthday they lose these benefits. But someone has to make these applications. Uh, It's true that if you dig into the legislation or regulations, that um, um, a doctor in their usual setting, uh, for some reason, the doctor can apply for these benefits for them. I'm not sure just exactly how that works, because it's not based on disability, it's a matter of age. But um, otherwise, you have to have someone who is their legal representative, who either has their power of attorney, or is their legal guardian appointed by the court. So this, of course, brings us to a discussion of legal guardianship versus powers of attorney, and uh, there's a common misconception or confusion. Powers of attorney are documents that are signed, and give authority to someone, such as your spouse or your child or, or a family friend, to help if you're while you're alive and even if you're capable. To assist you with uh, medical decisions. They allow people to have access to medical records and they also allow people to help with property, paying the bills, collecting pensions. Now, if if this is a matter of dealing with um, children with special needs, adult children with special needs, it becomes even more important because while the child was young, the parents often received cooperation from the pediatrician and Uh, hospitals, and other sources, because of course the child's a minor, and uh, they're, they're not deemed to be fully competent. But then once they turn 18, they are clearly deemed to be competent, even if they are not. And so you get into these complications where someone is not capable, someone is not competent, but what happens is they're deemed to be competent, so people who are restricted doctors hospitals um that are restricted by privacy legislation can't give you material because this child is deemed to be competent so you need to have powers of attorney and in a lot of cases uh, you do have to apply to the court to become the legal guardian uh we handle this on a provincial basis because it's a a court function it's not not a function of um where you or where the child or where the guardian lives, as it would be, for example, uh, for a probate application, have a jurisdiction being where the estate or the property is. It's, that's not how it works. So we file them all. They're all um, filed in Ottawa. We, we call it a bucket application because uh, we have uh, all of the affidavits necessary. And of course, the child, in, typically, the child has been assessed and is clearly not competent. So we then file these with the court in Ottawa, and uh, in due course they're approved. So there's no appearances on the part of the, uh, the guardians. And what you do is you would normally apply to make the, gar- the the parents the guardians, as well as one or more people, if you, if you have the luxury of having these people, such as uh, the child's siblings or uh, cousins perhaps, someone more their age, to become guardians along with the parents so that when the parents pass on, uh, there are uh, guardians still in place. Now, these are not alternate guardians. You can't structure it that way. They must be guardians at the same time, but they would be the surviving guardians. And these parties can apply for OAS and GIS. They can um, manage the RDSP disbursements. Uh, They have full authority to deal with um, supportive organizations like community living, for example, to to make sure that their care is properly handled. Because this is, of course, a constant uh, constant matter for the parents, a concern for the parents, that even if the, if the children are in a supported living situation and no matter how much they happen to trust the organization, it's always been around, it's always been a, a good organization, uh, there's always concerns on the part of the parents that the child will receive the proper care, that the, uh, the caregivers who are employed by the organization uh, are as uh, reputable and accountable as they want them to be. It's a constant concern, and it's just uh, the fear, the natural fear that a parent has that a child is properly cared for all of their lives. I know that the, uh, the, the true element here is the, for the parents is what will happen to my child when I'm gone, and I heard the comment, I just want to live one day longer than my daughter. Which can happen. But of course, in most cases doesn't. So you have to plan for that transition, that uh that continuity of care and support. And increasingly what we find is that there are, are fewer, if any, siblings, and many of the the family members that might be otherwise in the The family network to provide these supports are not in Canada. They're in other countries, which makes that rather difficult. And on the other hand, we're also seeing situations, particularly because real estate is now more expensive than it was 20 years ago, and because real estate composes a large portion of every estate of your average run-of-the-mill Canadian, We're finding that these estates are bigger, the size of the Henson Trusts are larger, so there's more to invest and there's more uh, available for the continued support of that child when the parents are gone, which is a a good thing. Uh, When you look at it in conjunction with ODSP, which goes until 65 and at a maximum is about 14,000 a year, and if you then look at the fact that at age 65, it becomes old age security and guaranteed income supplements, which are presently about 18,000. And then if the child has an RDSP, which is worth 200 or 300 or 400,000, um, and especially if they happen to be in some kind of supported environment and their needs are mo- therefore more modest, uh, they're going to be fine now pulling together all of these resources that takes a lot of work and it's the same hoops for every family every time as their as their children age and as the parents age and that's where we like to to position the practice because we have the the cumulative experience of thousands of families over well since 1996 in this particular case and all of the, um, the troubles and the successes and the victories and the failures that, that they've all had, uh, we've had the privilege of working with them to help them have those successes and overcome those failures and to learn along the way with them. Whereas for every family on their own, it's all just the same hoops, the same barriers that everyone else has had to have and, and uh, overcome and, uh, it's, it's uh, very gratifying for us, you know we our motto for the firm is "Do good and do well." Uh, there's no complication, you know, conflict between that between those two. Um, uh, there has to be a balance, obviously, but it's a very gratifying practice to have clients that you can see. you've really, truly helped that they have more peace of mind, which is what this show is all about. And who pay your bills because you had them sign a retainer. They knew in advance what the fixed fee was going to be. And then they say thank you. And we get our thank yous, of course, you know, on uh, the Internet. We get photos signed by the family. Uh, We get testimonials on the website. And it's, uh, it's a very gratifying practice. I'd be happy to answer any questions that people have, um feel free to contact the office or to just visit the website. Uh, The website is uh, kpopelaw.ca You'll find that there's various ways to contact me there to ask questions. And you'll find that there's um, a lot of videos and a lot of articles that are linked to the videos and back to the articles about a lot of these matters. The videos are all three minutes or less. The articles are all short. So you could... um, become many experts in a lot of these matters just by visiting the website and reading a lot of these things and attending my monthly webcasts. Um, Often my clients or new prospective clients take part in webcasts several times. Because of course, you know, you listen for an hour, hour and a half, it's difficult to absorb it all. And so you take part in the next one. We often, typically, our, our registrations for these webcasts are or three, four, or five, six hundred people, and uh, once a month, usually Wednesday, usually at seven, because a lot of people, of course, uh, they couldn't come out to a seminar, uh, but they can certainly sit home with a cup of tea and take part. And you can ask your questions during the webcast. I I can't get to all of them, of course, but um, we're happy to speak with you. Eight um, six six Ken Pope. Uh, I hate that part, but uh, I did it anyway. So you can call toll-free 866-536-7673 or uh, contact Karen at kpoplaw.ca. And that said, thank you for listening.